Children are dismissed to junior church. So you may head out to junior church. And we're going to be going to Romans 1 here in a minute. Romans chapter 1 for the third Sunday. Romans chapter 1. I introed Romans a few weeks ago, and we are going to continue. So I encourage you to turn there. I appreciate what Steve shared about prayer for the worship team. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. You know, on one hand, God has given us all these many, many, many songs that we can choose to worship him with, right? And the devil takes that and tries to divide us over them. We have so much potential, so many opportunities, and the devil wants to divide us. My brother's a pastor, and my younger brother, and he's in Wisconsin where it gets colder than humans like to be, and um, kind of like today here. And uh, one of their people was upset about worship songs. And I said, well, this is what you should do. She was upset about song selection. I said, this is what you should do. You know, I have at least three or four different hymnals in my office uh, from various churches. And then I have a hymnal on my Bible software. You know, try to get as many hymnals as you can find. Because, you know, we have all these different ones. Steve has many of them. And when you meet with her, just say, you know, look, we have all of these. <laughs> we have all these to choose from, you know. We can't logically, you just can't sing all of them every Sunday, nor can you make everybody happy. We try. So I like what Steve said about sometimes we may sing a song that, that, that you may not like and he may not like it, but others do. And we come together, hopefully united as a church family, to worship the Lord. United as a church family to worship the Lord. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 1 here. And so please turn there. We're going to start at verse 18 here in just a moment. Anybody know of Lee Strobel? He's a Christian apologist. Anybody you know of him, Lee Strobel? He wrote the book, The Case for Christ. Ever heard of The Case for Christ? And then he took that and he wrote many other books, The Case for Christmas. We actually gave out The Case for Christmas to everyone on Spitler Road last year. Uh, someone from our church donated the money to send those to everyone on Spitler Road. Really fabulous book. A few years ago, a really good book, The Case for Miracles that he wrote. The Case for the Creator is really good. The Case for Faith is really good. In fact, um, the, uh, his book on the case for miracles is, is uh, pretty much there's a YouTube version of it. A few years ago, they made a document. Well, no, it's actually a, book, a movie called The Case for Christ about his testimony and how he went from being a militant atheist to being a Christian. A very, very, very well done movie. I heard him on interviews about it. The Case for a Christ documentary, which is really him talking about his background and stuff, is linked on our church website uh, for people that have questions about their faith. Well, there's a book called The Case for Grace. The Case for Grace. And in it, Lee Strobel gives testimonies. His methodology, his background is journalism and law. That's why they're called The Case for for Christ. Well, in his books, he interviews people and writes in a very testimonial way. They're really easy to read, easy to listen to. In the case for grace, he gives testimonies of racists transformed by God's grace, addicts transformed by God's grace, murderers transformed by God's grace, the abused transformed by God's grace, the abusers transformed by God's grace. Have you been transformed by God's grace? Sometimes we may think, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief, I don't steal, I'm not a, any of this. Uh, I, I just have a little bit of this, you know, stuff. I, I don't need transformed. 
We all need transformed. And we all need to constantly pursue being holy like Jesus. Do you have those thoughts that come to your head where you're like, Oh, where'd that come from? Lord, rebuke me. Repent of it right away. Don't just say stupid stuff like that's just, that's just human nature. No, it's not. That's called sin nature. Needs rebuked. I remember in 2013, I was jogging, listening to the audiobook, well, several of the audio case for books. And I don't know which one this was. It might have been the case for faith or one of the other ones. And Lee Strobel was writing about a man who was on death row. And he got saved and eventually was released off of death row and even released. And now he was serving as a pastor. Lee Strobel wrote in his Lee Strobel way about walking up to his church, seeing him greet people. And I think he was on the death row. He was kind of at the wrong place, wrong time, but he was still guilty. He acknowledged that. But through various events, he was eventually released. How does that happen? How do people change? How, do, how, does, how does that happen? It only happens by Jesus. It only happens when we accept his forgiveness for our sins and his grace and his faithfulness and his holiness. That only happens by Jesus. How do we know right from wrong? <laughs> C.S. Lewis, in his, it might have been in Mere Christianity. It might have been in one of his other books. He makes a case that we know right from wrong because of God. Many people out there are atheists, and Rabbi Zacharias is good, was good, he's dead now, responding in these ways, and they would say, I don't believe in truth. There's no way we can know truth. There's, there's no absolute truth. And he would say, well, do you believe that absolutely? In other words, that means your statement isn't even truth. And then people would ask and say, well, that's, you know, would talk about right or wrong. And Rabbi would quote C.S. Lewis saying, well, how do you know what's wrong? Except God gave us that ability to know right from wrong. It's called common grace. God has given all of us, Christian and non-Christian, an, an element of common grace, an element of morality. You know, from a two-year-old knowing that if you take their toy, they're not too happy. Mercedes was probably three years old, and I had a meeting at church later on, and my church had a small gym. And uh, so I loaded. She didn't know why I was loading it. I took her tricycle, and I put it in the back of my vehicle. And she saw me taking her tricycle and loading it up. And she thought for sure I was getting, taking her tricycle. And she just started screaming out, no, you can't take that. She didn't know I was taking that so she could play on that during our meeting later on at the church. You know what? She knew right from wrong. She had a wrong view of it at that point, but she knew it. That's because God gives us that understanding. Somebody in Sunday school, we're, we're teaching Genesis in Sunday school, said it has a Ten Commandments. Have they always been in existence? And in a, I said, in a way, they have. In, Gen in Exodus 20, God wrote them for Moses, literally wrote them for Moses. But they were common knowledge before that. They were common knowledge. God just put them in writing at that time. God told Adam and Eve right from wrong. It was passed down through, through many, many of their descendants, you know. Eventually, but through demonic influence, I believe, it got warped and messed up, and then God corrected it. God teaches us morality. We know right from wrong because of God. We began a sermon series on Romans. We're still in Romans on chapter 1. And I want to get into a passage 
today, and we're going to re- read Romans 1.18 in a minute, and I want to make the case that God's wrath on us points to our need for Christ. In Romans chapter 1, we see God's passive wrath as opposed to active wrath. That means three times, three times in Romans chapter 1, it says God gave them over to. God gave them over to. God gave them over. In other words, as we ignore God so long, and as we fight against his moral law that he teaches us, God eventually says, have it your way. Have it your way. And that's God's passive wrath. But it is always pointing to our need for Christ. We're going to get into that in a minute. That's my theme. I see an application here. The application for all of us is to trust in Jesus and point others towards him as well. Trust in Jesus and point others to him as well. I spent a lot of time on this uh, Romans 1 a few months ago, so we're just going to review and I'm going to make some different applications here in a minute. Let's read, I'm going to read Romans 1.18. Then I'm going to talk because that's what preachers do. And then we're going to read Romans 1, 18 through 32. Then I'm going to talk some more, and then you can go home. But after we sing. Romans 1, 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice a few things right off the bat. Twice in Romans 1, 18, he uses the word unrighteousness. Now, you don't know it yet, but I'm going to tell you later. In Romans 1.17, he talks about the righteousness of God. And so there's a little contrast there. The unrighteousness in verse 18 is to point back to the righteousness that we need that we can only get from God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is poured out on sin. And it's like a dam being stored up right now. And eventually, because it's passive wrath, but eventually, if you read the end of Revelation, God's wrath will be poured out against all sin. And it's not that God wants to just inflict pain because he's this vindictive egomaniac. Not at all. It's because God is holy. God is holy. God is set apart. God is righteous. God is pure. And God's righteousness and holiness consumes anything that goes against that holiness. When you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, God's wrath went against him instead of on you. I want to talk about the context of this passage. If you read from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 32, the major point is that being Jewish does not give one salvation, nor does being Gentile. If you read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 3, it's all about sin and the consequence of sin. It's all about badness. It's all, and, and that's all geared to point us to to, to accept in Jesus as a Savior. He is saying in Romans chapter 1, all these sins that he's going to list are predominant in the Gentile world. But then in chapter 2, he switches and he says, being Jewish doesn't give you salvation either. Not automatically. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 23, he hits home. He says, being Jewish doesn't give you salvation either. In, in, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, he says, therefore you, that's the Jewish people, have no excuse. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins with, then what advantage has the Jew? He's pointing people to Jesus. He's pointing people to their their need for a Savior. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, there's an extended quote 
from the Psalms regarding Jewish unrighteousness. We all need a Savior. We all need Jesus. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 23. Most of you may know this passage. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you need to read that with chapter 3, verse 24. And are justified by his, God's grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let's say them together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means to be made righteous by God's grace as a gift. You can't earn it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is all pointing to our need for a Savior. If you don't put Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 in context. Because we're going to read those, those verses in a minute. And they're pretty severe. A lot of judgment there. A lot of sin there. If you don't put them in context. We could easily think how legalistic Paul is. We could easily think. I cannot believe that Paul would mention these politically incorrect things. You're not allowed to say these things. But realize, A, Paul doesn't care about being politically correct. And we shouldn't either. Not here at least. Secondly, Paul is pointing to our need for a Savior. And the first step in recognizing your need for a Savior is repentance. Recognizing we are the problem. We are the problem. Our sin is the problem. We have sinned against a holy, righteous God. We have committed high treason against God. We need salvation. I want to read now from this passage, Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. So please turn there if you haven't and read with me. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, which we already read verse 18, but we're going to read it again. And we're going to go through verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. That's, that's common grace, by the way. That's general revelation. God has displayed his awesomeness to everyone. It says that right there in verse, uh, in verse 19. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, not just perceived, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everybody is without excuse. God has made himself known. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. God said, have it your way. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Our mind, our thinking is even depraved. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, knew, though they know God's righteous decree, notice that, they know. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. By the way, do you notice that right now? People not only approve things, they give give hearty approval to those who practice them. Old translations say hearty approval. People don't only condone sin in our world right now, they give hearty approval, total approval, total endorsement for those that practice them. I walked through this passage a few months ago, so I want to just point out a few main things in some applications. A few months ago, I walked through this passage because I was talking about having a biblical worldview. Having a biblical worldview. And, and this is showing that the one part of having a biblical worldview is that we are the problem. We need Jesus. We need a Savior. We are fallen. We are depraved. Without Jesus, we are the problem. But now I'm walking through this passage because we are preaching through Romans. And we should not skip any of these verses. This list of sins is not complete. Paul is showing our potential in sin. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul is showing that we need a Savior. Paul is also showing that the further we get from God, the further we get from God, the more depraved we may be. The further we get from God, the more depraved we may be. The further we get from God, the more that we can invent new ways to sin. However, remember that we all have a sin problem. We all need Jesus. Notice this in verse 18. In verse 18, we see two uses of the word unrighteousness. Twice. Wrath is coming against our unrighteousness, and we are also holding down or suppressing or hindering the truth in unrighteousness. You realize that? We are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. John Piper shares about those two uses of the word unrighteousness. Why does the Apostle Paul, or should I say, why does God inspire Paul to say unrighteousness twice? Not once, but twice. Why? Piper shares, surely Paul, in writing those two words, unrighteousness, means for us to connect them with the word righteousness in verse 17. Because if you go back to verse 17, he said this. He said, for in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We receive righteousness through the Holy Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Piper saying the Apostle Paul, God-inspiring Paul, is trying to emphasize the righteousness that we receive in Jesus. He wants us to hear in these words that connection. Further, John Piper shares, in other words, you can see right off the bat that the bad news of verse 18 is meant to highlight the good news of verse 17. The bad news of verse 18, of our sin, of suppressing the truth, is meant to highlight, to emphasize, to point to the good news of verse 17 about the gospel, about the righteousness that we can receive by Jesus. And and, and Piper says, if you don't get your condition as unrighteous, you won't love 
the awesome reckoning of verse 17. He says, so don't run from these things. Don't run from the diagnosis. If we don't realize how bad we are without Jesus, we won't love the gospel. Verses 19 through 20 are all about general revelation. God has made himself known. God gave us morals. God gave us morality. Listen to this. Near the end of World War II, the first town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was Ordorf, Germany. Ordorf, Germany. Concentration camp. Allies liberate it. Allied soldiers got there before the Nazis could get rid of any evidence of the camp. And the American soldiers walked into the camp to find hundreds upon hundreds of dead bodies. It is difficult to exaggerate the horrors of these camps. When General Patton <clears throat> arrived in Ordorf, he promptly vomited upon witnessing, witnessing the scene. It was and is too horrific for words. The people of that area were suppressing the truth. They knew it, but they were suppressing it. Listen, listen to this. General Pat knew that the German people, the German people needed to know what had happened. General Patton brought the mayor of Ordorf and his wife to see the camp. He then ordered every able body in the town to dig graves for the bodies. And they held a funeral for the deceased. After the funeral, General Patton found out that the mayor and his wife had hung themselves. The mayor of Ordorf and his wife had hung themselves. Before their death, they left a note. And the note read this. We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. One pastor writes, Suppression, you see, is not the same as ignorance. This Bible passage is saying God has given us all knowledge of him, general revelation. God has given us all morality, evidence of him all around, including a moral value, but we suppress it. It's not that we, that it's not that we are ignorant. It's not that we don't know. We suppress it. Suppression is not the same as ignorance. Suppression means the truth is in there, but you keep yourself from acknowledging it. The truth is in there, but you keep yourself from acknowledging it. It's like a beach ball that you are attempting to hold under the water, but the beach ball keeps wanting to rise to the surface, right? That's the truth. God has given you his truth and evidence of him and morality, but we oftentimes try to push it back and hold it within. Verses 22 through 23 share, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Imagine this. Imagine, many of you are married. Imagine that if you loved your wedding ring more than your spouse. Your wedding ring represents your marriage. It's just a symbol. Listen, creation. Many times we love the creator I mean, many times we love the creation rather than the creator. That's what that's like. We need to let all of creation point back to the awesome creator and worship him. Three times in this passage, it says God gave them over. Verse 24 says God gave them over. Verse 26 says God gave them over. Verse 28 says God gave them over. Then verses 28 through 32 say God gave them over to a depraved mind. We are depraved. We need divine intervention. We cannot save ourselves. And this is how Paul begins Romans. He reminds us of our depravity, of our need for him. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through, three, through chapter 3, verse 21, it's all about sin. 
chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 21, all about sin. And I want to read something that John Piper wrote about this. He says, if you try to do an end run around this section and jump from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 21, if you do that, you won't love the gospel. You hear that? If you think this is all about sin, I don't like reading about sin, let's just skip this. Let's skip this section. You won't love the gospel. And Piper says, that's what's being taught all over the world today in the name of Christianity. In the name of Christianity, people are saying, let's just jump over this sin stuff. Let's just jump over this wrath stuff. This is not encouraging. It's not going to make people want to come back to, to church on Sunday morning. Isn't that what the world's saying? The world is saying, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the wrath of God. Don't talk about this stuff. And even in the church, people are saying that. Even in the church, people are saying, you can't talk about this stuff. I like what Piper says. John Piper says, I don't believe that, by the way. I don't believe that. I don't believe that, visitors, who you are. Frankly, I think you'd like an interpretation of death and suffering and moral degeneracy in our society. I think the world, the world is kind of interested in questions like, where'd death come from? And is there any hope to overcome it? So I'm not worried about talking about sin and chasing anybody away. People leave for all kinds of reasons. And people come to church for the most strange reasons you can ever imagine. God brings you here this morning for this message. You're here for this message, and I pray you'll be listening. And that's totally true. When we do things like that, we forget the Holy Spirit. And we also compromise the Word of God. And we also compromise the Gospel. We can go into a series, which we're not, and we could preach on each one of these sins. And we're not going to do that right now. Maybe someday. We could take apart each one of these verses. They're all important. The point is that we are depraved. We need a Savior. The sins in this section are real, and they are sinful. And the deeper you get into a sinful lifestyle, the further you get from God. We need to all repent whenever we are in sin. The hot topic of this passage is homosexuality. Which is interesting because there's a bunch of other sins listed here, by the way. And I realize that for some of you, homosexuality is an emotional issue. Because you or someone you know is in the homosexual lifestyle. Listen, the Bible makes clear from Genesis to Revelation that God intended sexual relationships to be between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Beyond that, human nature... And biology makes clear that God intended sexual relationships to be between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Having said that, I must add, heterosexuality does, does, oh, can't speak. heterosexuality does not automatically mean godliness. Somebody can be heterosexual and gloat about it, but living in just as much sin. We need to seek purity. And you can be heterosexual and be living in lust or pornography or temptations. Too often, the church might focus on homosexuality and ignore that living in a cohabitating sexual relationship, even in heterosexuality, is sin. That is wrong and he's repented of. It is wrong. It is sinful. We all must repent of sins. We all must seek the Lord. We all must seek purity. I want to make some applications here. Trust in the Lord and point others towards him as well. Who are you trusting in for salvation? Are you recognizing that Jesus is your only way of salvation? Point others to Jesus. Are you pointing others towards Jesus? Do you recognize your need for Jesus? Are you in total and complete dependence upon Jesus? Do you need Jesus or are you self-sufficient? 
Are you confident in your own thinking? Realize that even our mind is depraved. I want to share one other illustration which the Holy Spirit brought to my mind last night, and I'm going to share it now. I read a really good article about the persecuted church last week. This person had served on the mission field. And a few years ago, this person wrote a letter to the head of ISIS, who's dead now, by the way. The head of, the head of that, that ISIS leader is dead. He died and the American troops took care of him, okay? We'll just say it that way. But this guy wrote a letter to him and he said, you're not going to win. He said, ISIS is not going to win. He said, I know you're not going to win because I serve with Christians who have been persecuted by you. And I also serve with Christians who have converted from being Muslim. He shared testimonies of many people who were Muslims, even militant Muslims, militant ISIS Muslims. And yet they saw how the Christians responded in persecution. They saw these militant persecuting Muslims, ISIS members, saw how Christians were loving and how Christians were forgiving and how Christians were gentle, even under persecution. And these Muslims learned from that and they repented and they turned their lives over to Jesus. They turned their lives over to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The Holy Spirit is at work in way more ways than we know. It's amazing. It is awesome. God is at work. In this passage in Romans 1, 18 through 32, we see human pride. Many think pride is the root of all sin, and it's quite possible it is. Regarding verse 18, Francis Schaeffer said, The lack of a thankful heart is when you start, when you start departing from the Lord. The lack of a thankful heart is when you start departing from the Lord. Anthropologists, those are people who study people. Anthropologists say we are telic creatures. Telic, T-E-L-I-C. That means that we are purpose people. We always find some greater cause to live for. We, we, we find something to attach ultimate value to. Something we determine that without that thing, life would not be worth living. It's like Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is, a, is not a Christian, but he's a psychologist. And this is what he said. He said, there are no true atheists, practically speaking. There are those who acknowledge the gods they are worshiping and those who do not acknowledge the gods. So as I close this sermon, I encourage you to seek the Lord and make sure that he truly is your Lord. Repent of anything that is an idol. Make sure that Jesus is your cause to live for. This passage is pointing people to Jesus. This passage is pointing people, and it will continue in chapter 2 and chapter 3. These chapters are pointing people to our need for a Savior. Paul is setting the foundation for biblical soteriology. Soteriology is a theology of salvation. And the foundation must start with our depravity. We have a problem. We have violated God's law. We need salvation. We have suppressed the truth. Matt Chandler shares about a time when he was at a conference. They used to have these conferences called True Love Waits, and it was about sexual purity, which is very, very good, obviously. But I, this illustration was bad. Somebody 
took a rose, one of the speakers, and there's probably hundreds if not thousands of teenagers, and they took a rose and they started it at one end of the auditorium and told everybody to look at the rose, hold it, smell the rose, you know, and then pass it on to the end. And by the time it got to the end, of course, the rose was wilted and drooping. Most of its petals had fallen off because everybody had touched the rose. And everybody had smelled the rose. And everybody had felt the petals on the rose. And he said, who wants the rose? And the point is, if you live in a sexual promiscuous lifestyle and you have casual sex, you're hurting your own body and nobody wants you. That's a very bad illustration, by the way. And that's why I'm sharing this. One pastor writes, I think I get where that speaker was coming from. In an increasingly fluid culture, we need to be clear about what the Bible says about sex. One of our culture's favorite lies is that sex can be casual, but it never is. Sex inherently unites people, body and soul, so much so that casual sex does damage to everyone involved. But there's a difference between warning people about sexual sin and heaping shame on the sexual sinner. Remember, 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 there is a Savior who came and died for those sins. He overcame them through the grave so that he could restore those who have suffered because of their sin. This is why when Matt Chandler heard the speaker ask, who would want this rose? Matt Chandler wanted to jump up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants to redeem us, all of us, from every sin we've committed, no matter how deep we've been in them, no matter how long we've been in them. Jesus wants to save us, and the Holy Spirit is convicting us that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus loves to save the prodigal, and Jesus loves to give us second chances. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you save us. I thank you so much that you set us free. I thank you so much when everything's against us. If we would turn to you, you are here to save us and to set us free from our sin. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you do not want us to suppress the truth. The Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven chasing us down. Thank you. Lord God, keep on chasing us down. For those in this congregation, listening, watching at home, here present, who do not know you. May today be the day they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior. May today be the day they believe in you as the one and only Savior. May today be the day they trust and commit to you. May all those here recognize you want to save us. As 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, you are patient. You don't want any to perish, but you want all to come to repentance. May we, may we repent. Whether we've been a Christian for years, any time we sin, may we repent and turn to you. Convict us, Holy Spirit, convict us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The altars are always open, I want to share. So if the Holy Spirit's ever laying anything on your heart, the altars are open. If you just want to come up and pray by yourself, it's always available. If you want to invite somebody to come with you, that's always okay as well. I'm turn it over to Steve.